Well, we're continuing in our um, excursion, I, I like to think of it, from our, from our long-term series to, in which we've been looking at the Ten Commandments and we've been taking them one by one. We will return to the, to the main study um, when we've finished. But we've now reached the, the Sixth Commandment, um, which is in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, very short verse which simply says thou shalt not kill um, most people or, or those who have any understanding or memory of the Bible at all if you ask them what's in the Ten Commandments this is the commandment that they're most likely to remember um, and at first glance it seems like a, a very um, easy a commandment to understand and perhaps many of us will you know, would think well at least I'm going to get off this one I haven't murdered anybody thou shalt not kill it's clear cut it's simple um, what's there to talk about but in actual fact there's a great deal of explanation which is required this particular verse has been used by many as a justification for pacifism, for the removal of capital punishment, and for vegetarianism. Um, perhaps the last one's not the most important one, but thou shalt not kill has been used to, to justify all these things. So we do need to clarify what this commandment prohibits and what it doesn't prohibit um, and even when we're clear about that uh, we're still some distance from an adequate understanding of this commandment why because like all the commandments which are given in negative terms uh, it implies the commandment implies what positively should be done to render true obedience to the commandment so the meaning of this sixth commandment is expanded in the Old Testament and particularly in the New Testament, um, especially by the Lord Jesus himself in the Gospels. And if we don't already realise, I think probably by the end of this study, we will all realise that we have all broken this commandment. In its expanded meaning, this commandment tells us much about how we should view Christian holiness and understand that it has implications for Christian worship. Um, as always, the commandment condemns the sinner, leads the seeker to Christ, and is a lamp to the feet of the godly. And this commandment is exactly the same. It does all those things. So, I'm going to be, I don't think I'll be speaking very long tonight and I'll try and be as simple as possible. First of all, let's be clear about what this commandment actually means. What does it forbid and what does it not forbid? Well, unless we want to make a nonsense of most of the rest of the Bible, it cannot mean thou shalt not kill anything or thou shalt not kill anyone under any circumstances. 
Um, it is clear from the highest authority of all, the Lord Jesus himself, that what is being forbidden here is unlawful killing or murder. Jesus said um, in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 18, to the, to the, to the seeker, he, he said, Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may, in, may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? And Jesus said, Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. And so on. Thou shalt not kill. Means unlawful killing thou shalt not take a human life unlawfully uh, behind this sixth commandment is the cardinal truth that God is the sovereign author of life who alone has the power and right to give life and to take life Genesis 2 verse 7 it reads, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God gives life. He's the author of life. In Christianity, humans are more uh, important, more precious um, more significant than animal life. We love animals, animals are important, but they are not given the same status as a human life. That's a fact. Um, and this is because of, of the Imago Dei, the image of God. The image of God is stamped on every single human being. It's marred, it's defaced, and it's more defaced in some than in others. But there is the stamp of God on every individual human life. One day, there were a whole bunch of religious types trying to trick the Lord Jesus. They even sent spies to watch him and to catch him in his words. And um, he said, you know, is it lawful to pay taxes, Jesus? And Jesus said, bring me a penny. And he he took the penny and he said, whose image is on this penny? And uh, said, they said it was Caesar's. And Jesus said, give, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What he was saying was, yes, this is Caesar's money. He, he, he's in charge of the money, but, but I, God, own all the humans. My stamp is on every single human being the image of God and God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him male and female created he them so if we're agreed then that this commandment forbids the unlawful taking of human life This presupposes that there is such a thing as lawful taking of human life. Um, I'm not going to talk about 
animal life because it's pretty obvious from the Old Testament system of worship that animals were sacrificed in the various offerings. Meat was provided by God for human sustenance, which requires hunting and rearing and slaughter of animals for food. So there really is no basis in the Bible for vegetarianism. Um, however, having said that, Paul teaches that Christians who want to avoid meat shouldn't be condemned, but you can't really, there's no scriptural argument for vegetarianism. So restricting then our thoughts to human life, there are a number of examples where scripture either permits or in some cases commands the lawful taking of human life. And I probably won't capture them all. The, for example, the Bible permits a man to defend himself and his household against a thief and in certain circumstances to the point of taking his life. Um, there's a very interesting verse in Exodus chapter 22, verse 2, if you want to look, at, look with me. Um, where it says, if a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. It's quite a difficult sentence, but in other words, if a thief is found breaking in your house and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So this is in the context of a, of a thief breaking into a Jew's home or an Israeli's home uh, at night in the, under cover of darkness. However, this permission, this uh, permission to, uh, to defend oneself was not without limits because the very next verse says, if the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him. For he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, things are different in daylight. When it would be possible to call for assistance. And when you could make the assumption that uh, theft is on the robber's mind rather than murder. I may, I may be reading too much into that. but So in broad daylight, there, there wasn't permission. Uh, in the same way as there was under cover of darkness or in darkness to defend oneself and one's family even to the point of taking the life of a thief. Scripture also clearly actually commands the death penalty for murder. In fact, in the, under the Mosaic system, um, there are about 30 other crimes uh, for which the death penalty was commanded. But significantly, the um, death penalty for murder was, was not instituted as part of the Mosaic law. It was instituted as part of the covenant which God made with the whole of mankind through Noah. So whatever view one has about the Mosaic uh, system and 
the Westminster Confession of Faith basically says the legal system uh, has ended apart from where there is general, uh, general equity, in other words, where there's wisdom in the, in the mosaic legal system when a state can borrow that wisdom and put it into, into its laws. But whatever your view on that, it's irrelevant. The point is that this was nothing to do uh, initially with the mosaic system. This was with the covenant with the whole of mankind. The preciousness of human life is given as the reason why murder should result in capital punishment. And, and, and in my understanding, that has never been repealed. Um, Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of every man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood... By man shall his blood be shed, for in, the, for in the image of God made he man. You know, I actually think it's the mark of a nation that does not understand the value of human life, which doesn't have capital punishment. Everybody says, you know, most people will say the opposite, you know, that... Um, Countries which have capital punishment don't value human life. And in fact, it's the opposite. It's because of the understanding that to take a life unlawfully is taking the life of someone made in the image of God. That that life, that human life is so precious that it requires, um, it requires God's sentence which he gave in Genesis 9. Of course, Scripture distinguishes between murder and manslaughter, um, accidental killing. In some cases, neg uh, killing through negligence, but not willful, reckless negligence was treated in the same way as murder. So there were these cities of refuge provided by the Lord where the manslayer could flee for refuge from the manslayer, from, from the avenger rather. But there was always a very careful legal forensic um, investigation into whether the killing was murder or manslaughter. And it was quite an, you know, a thorough process, which you can read at your leisure in Numbers chapter 35. And if the guilt, if, if guilt of murder was proved beyond doubt, then the fact that you'd, you'd, run, you'd run to, you had ran to the city of refuge would do you no good. You would be turfed out and you would be, uh, you would be executed. Um, so, yeah, uh, as in most legal systems, there is a distinction between murder and manslaughter. Another example of the lawful taking of human life is a just war. Um, and of course, it's tricky to know which war is a just war and which isn't. Um, but one can, we can think of examples of, 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 of a just war. 
I personally don't think it's the job of the individual soldier to work that out there, to obey orders, but it is the job of the state to make these decisions. That's why we need to pray for our government, for our leaders, these very difficult um, decisions. But it's clear from Scripture, I'm just sticking to Scripture really, that there are times when it is justified to go to war. God himself told Israel to blot out the name of the Amalekites. And, um, you know, and scripture uh, speaks of, men of, uh, of some men of war as also men of God. You can be both. You can be a man of war and you could be a man of God. Think of King David as an example. Think of the centurion in the gospel, the Roman officer praised by our Lord for possessing the greatest faith he'd, he'd come across. He, he, it takes something, doesn't it, to impress the Lord Jesus. But this Roman officer impressed Jesus. The soldier Cornelius in Acts is commended. His arms were respected. John the Baptist told the soldiers to be satisfied with their wages and not to extort people but he didn't say stop being a soldier did he so yes they, there are these examples of where the taking of human life is lawful that is not what be, is being forbidden here in this sixth commandment it's not prohibiting all killing in all circumstances however it does prohibit unlawful killing um, all unlawful killing is prohibited killing by individuals by the state you know and there are examples where the state we think of Russia of, of um, we, we think of, of, of Russia um, the, the USSR Stalin and other examples where the state has, has become a, a means of mass murder, um, terrorism, and so on. In its narrowest sense, in its immediate sense, shall we say, this commandment forbids such things as abortion, for example. It is clear in Scripture that the fetus, which is the modern parlance for a baby, um, a child, is precious to God. Um, even at the earliest stage of pregnancy, the moment of conception, that it's not, a, it's not a fetus, it's a baby, it's a child. Um, when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, when Elizabeth heard the, the greeting of Mary in Luke chapter 1, it doesn't talk about John the Baptist being a fetus, does it? It says in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the baby, the babe, leaped in her womb there was a baby in her womb and that's how we should talk about 
the unborn. They're babies, they're children. The value of a baby is not determined by its viability in the womb. It's not determined by the wishes and circumstances of, of the parents. It's determined by the image of God. The Imago Dei, the fact that this baby is made in the image and likeness of God with the very breath of God in it, in, in his, him or her. Now we've wandered so far from the Bible in, in Western liberal societies that we, we talk about pro-choice and women's rights over her own body. But of course, pro-choice and women's choice in this context really is pro-murder. Is pro I, I don't deny a woman's right over her body in, 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 in probably all other contexts, but in pregnancy, a woman having a right to over the life of her unborn makes no scriptural sense. You know, there are, of course, rare, very rare situations where the doctor may say, in a very complicated situation, I can deliver you, maybe talking to the husband, I can give you your wife back or your baby, but I can't give you both. And those are very difficult situations. Many mothers will choose to die to allow their baby to be born, but we mustn't go beyond scripture. The scripture says, thou shalt not kill. The husband may say, well, I, I, want, I want to keep my, I, I want my other five children to have a mother. We're not to judge in that situation, but hard cases make bad laws. We're not to make law on the exception. And that, that, that example is a million miles away from abortion on demand. There's a very revealing couple of verses in Exodus chapter 21. If you want to turn there, verses 22 and 23. And, and these verses, verses 22 and 23, show how God views the status of the unborn child. Here's a scenario where um, men strive, if men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then Thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, and so on. Now, in other words, no distinction whatsoever is made between harm to a person born or to a person unborn. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, of course, we can be we must be rightly um, well enraged in a holy way against abortion. But we mustn't be hypocritical either by opposing abortion but not caring one jot and not willing to lift a finger for the child after 
the child has been born. Not trying, not doing anything or caring about the preservation of life afterwards. This is part of the great division, the great rift in the between the black American church and, and, and white evangelical church, if we can put it in those terms. Um, that's how they feel often in these black American churches. Well, yes, you're anti-abortion, but you don't, you, don't care about, you don't care about us once the child is born. Luther wrote in his large catechism, if you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. And so it is really no use waxing lyrical um, on the rights of the unborn if we don't lift a finger for those in need who are born. Um, our Lord Jesus Christ speaks of the... Of the um, Evidence that he will cite of true regeneration in the final judgment. And this is something which, which I, I don't think I've taken on anywhere near enough. He, he says, this is, what, this is the evidence that the Lord Jesus Christ will cite to say, that this, is, this is a sheep, this is, a, this is one of my children. I was an hungered. And ye gave me meat. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and ye took me in. Naked and ye clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me. Now I find that very challenging. And so, just finishing up on these examples of unlawful killing neglect in that way is one suicide suicide can be described as self-murder there are many examples of suicide in the Bible think of Saul, King Saul and Samson as examples and, and it is possible for real Christians to become so depressed and ill that they take their own lives. Suicide is a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. All sins for the Christian are forgiven at the cross. And I've known, well, one particularly great, I won't say great, it wasn't great, but a really good preacher, a really strong Christian who took his own life and, and it, nobody could make any sense of it is he forgiven? I believe he was the thing to keep saying to those in desperate plight is to offer the hope of the gospel like Paul did with the Philippian jailer who, was, who had took and drawn his sword who was going to commit suicide and would have killed himself, Paul cried with a loud voice, do thyself no harm. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And from a pastoral point of view, you, you, you wouldn't want to go on a home visit to someone who's suicidal and necessarily start with the point that suicide is a sin. I mean, you, you need to get that across in some way, but 
You offer hope. Hope in the gospel, the hope of Christ. The sixth commandment prohibits euthanasia, also known as mercy killing. Cloaked in, in, in such t- terms as uh, having a good death, dying with dignity. Um, to see people suffering intense pain or, or degenerative terminal illness is a, you know, we have to stand against euthanasia. But we have to also do that with, with some tenderness and understanding of why someone would want their life to end. But we have to insist that it is only God who has the right to decide when human life ends. It's not for us to decide. That isn't to say that when that if uh, we become terminally ill or have relatives that in that situation, that we have to take every available medication or an every intervention to prolong life artificially. That's not euthanasia. Euthanasia is the deliberate ending of life, which is murder. And we as Christians need to stand against that, and it is going to be a real issue. It's already a real issue for us. So these are all examples of the narrow Meaning of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. But you know, scripture has a much fuller conception of how this commandment is broken and a much fuller conception of how this commandment is kept. Looking at this very short verse in the full light of scripture, a much fuller and richer biblical idea emerges. One which the Reformed Confessions capture beautifully. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm talking about myself, I don't think I've paid enough attention to. You see, the second table of the law, as it's often called, the uh, vertical relationships that we have, I, I think they need to be factored in to our definition and understanding of personal holiness um, because and, and I'm uh, this, is, this is me I'm talking about we, we focus on our private spirituality which is really important but part of holiness is is how we relate to others and how we serve others and how we meet the needs of others um, Whatever we mean by separation, biblical separation, it cannot mean that we don't try and meet the needs of, of those in desperate plight. Um, our first priority, of course, is to, is to brothers and sisters, Christians, those in need. But, I mean, I think of a verse like um, Galatians 6 and verse 10. It says... As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, we need to read that carefully. It doesn't say 
take every opportunity to do good unto Christians only unto all men especially unto them who are of the household of faith you know we have to get our relationship to unbelievers right we need to get the biblical balance we need to read all the verses that, that relate to our uh, relationship to unbelievers um, so let's be clear about the ways in which we can break this sixth commandment like I said at the beginning, we mustn't think that because we haven't literally taken a, a pistol or a knife and, and killed someone, that we have obeyed this commandment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clarified the commandment or, or got to the spiritual meaning of this commandment. In Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. It's a parallelism. It's not, one isn't worse than the other. Raka means really, you know, a modern parlance, calling somebody a moron, somebody who's thick, calling somebody thick or brainless, uh, and a fool. You know, so they're the same thing really. And the Lord Jesus is saying, He's saying, you can kill somebody with your words. You know, I, I think of all the times when I, <laughs> I've been dri driving and someone's cutting on me or I think they've done something stupid. And I go, oh, look at that fool. Or whatever it might be. We're, we're all, we've all said it, haven't we? Have we? Has anyone here never, never called someone a fool? Or, or, or something similar? Well, the Lord Jesus says that's, that's, mur that's murder. That's the root. We, we can think of all of these commandments really as a, as a, a, a bit like a, a family tree of sins. There's the, you know, um, <clears throat> murder is just the, the headline title of a whole family of sins that come from that root. Jesus goes on to tell the people not to do their temple duties until they are reconciled to their brothers and to settle legal disputes out of court. And our Lord speaks of the root of murder. Murder unseen, we could call it. But murder nonetheless. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is my favourite catechism, uh, tells us, it says this, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. 
such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Well, that's getting a bit closer to the bone, isn't it, for all of us? As Christians, we, you know, we, we, we need to pray that the root of sin, the root of anger, is dealt with in our lives. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.31, 4, chapter 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You see, you know, how, 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 are we do, how are we doing with that, <laughs> everybody? How am I doing with that? You know, we, we've all got anger, haven't we? Some people say, well, yes, I, I get angry, but, it's, but I, I don't hold a grudge. It's over in a moment. And I think, I can't remember who said, but somebody said, well, yes, but that's just what, that's just what happens when you, when you fire a pistol. It's over in a moment, but you've left devastation all around you. You see, our, our anger and our words of anger kill. This is the point. It can kill relationships. It can kill a marriage. It can kill church unity. Um, this, is why, well, this is why James, I think this is what James is um, talking about. If I can, I think it's somewhere around... James 4, I think. Yes. Um, this is what James is talking about. He says, from chapter 4 of James, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Oh, what, what do you think of, you know, he's talking about church. <laughs> from whence come wars and fightings? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members... Ye lust and have not, and here it is, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Now, not for a moment, I don't think he's, he's saying that the, these, these congregations are getting up in the middle of the service and knifing each other. He's saying the way they're behaving to each other is killing Christian unity. They're killing reputations, gossip kills people's characters and so the root of murder is anger, envy, bitterness jealousy all these things wrath, clamour, evil speaking must all be put away from us And so, dear friends, you know, if we've got a problem with anger, if, we, if we, we tend to envy, it's a serious problem. We've got to get, we need to ask the Lord to deal with it. We've all got different personalities, um, but we're all capable of, of, of at least of bitterness. We may, we, we may not be on a short fuse. I'm, I'm not particularly on a short fuse. I'm quite mellow is that the right word mellow others flare up one's not better than the other the point is there has to be love 
deep in our hearts. Not only does scripture expand our initial reading of this sixth commandment in terms of how it can be broken, but it does so in terms of how it should be kept. And this is the last point, really. Um, Keeping this sixth commandment is more than just avoiding getting your gun out and shooting someone. The Lord Jesus, as we all know, said in Matthew 5, 43 and 44 ye have heard that it hath been said thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy but i say unto you love your enemies bless them that curse you do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you it it was never written actually in the old testament to to hate your enemies and love your neighbor um but in places you could be forgiven for interpreting it that way. But the Jews particularly did overtly teach that, that, the, that, that you were to hate your, na- your enemy. But the implication of this sixth commandment is that we should love our enemies. Just think about that for a minute. Not just love brothers and sisters in the faith the Lord Jesus said love your neighbour as yourself Does that, um, it's a very strange interpretation to think that Jesus meant just other Christians he said love your neighbour as yourself you know I find that very tr- I, I'm not doing that anywhere near enough and I've, I really if, if I want one thing to be heard tonight is that and it's challenged me to we need to factor that into our understanding of holiness it's not all about just our personal quiet private reading of the bible and praying and avoiding sin that it, that's vital but i think if you take the whole of scripture it has to include loving our neighbor i don't know exactly what that looks like in every circumstance but i want i want to learn more about that This is why Jesus said very challenging things, things which I don't think we've really processed properly, even, even now. He said in Matthew 5, 46 and 47, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? So, I'm I'm convinced that we need to be separate from the world, but I think we need to be very, we need need to, to, to really think about what that means, because it cannot mean no interaction with unbelievers and not loving them, not serving them. I'm not claiming to know how all that works out. The second table of the law and this commandment in particular teaches us that a part of holiness at least, a part of godliness, is glorifying God by serving others. Developing a concern for God's 
concerns. I'm not advocating a social gospel. I'm very against a social gospel. But I think if we return actually to our reformed creeds and catechisms, they, this is something that I think we've lost sight of, which they understood. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 68, and I'm finishing now, it says, what is required in the sixth commandment? Answer, the sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavours to preserve our own life and the life of others. Is that a social gospel? No. The Heidelberg Catechism, again, is useful. Question 107. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbour in any such way? Answer. No. When God condemns envy, hatred and anger, he commands us to love our neighbour as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can and to do good even to our enemies. Martin Luther wrote, this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbour, or, though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. When you think about it, of course, the historic evangelical churches has always thrown up great social reformers, William Wilberforce and others. I'm not saying that we're going to be doing that, but you know, we in some way have to. The Lord Jesus said, Let your light shine. Let it so shine before men that they will see your Father in heaven. And somehow we need to do that. Um, there are some Christian traditions which are all about the second table of the law. We could call it the social gospel. That's wrong. That's unbalanced. There are other traditions where it's all about the first table of the law. It's all about our relationship to God. Highly important, but without any thought, hardly, about the second table of the law. Um, and I feel that that's something which I've been guilty of as well. True Christianity is both. The law of God is both. It's one law. And we need that balance in our piety, in our spirituality, in our definition of holiness. I believe our confessions, Reformed confessions, can help us. Um, and I commend this commandment to you tonight in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com that's grace2seekers at gmail.com 
Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.